Father, we do thank you for this letter of Philippians. I thank you for the love of Paul, the closeness that he had for these dear saints in Philippi. I thank you for the intimacy, for the care, the love, the passion that he had for them. Father, we also look to his example for just what it is to have true biblical contentment, true biblical joy. Here Paul sat in, uh, under house arrest, not knowing the outcome of his case, whether he would live or die, he didn't know. Uh, but in the midst of his circumstances, he, he looked uh, and saw what you were doing around him. We looked, he looked around and uh, saw those that were in, in concern for him, and he was able to share his secret of contentment, and that's being in Christ and knowing Christ and, and walking with Jesus closely through all of life's circumstances. And so, Father, as we look at this passage today, we ask that your Spirit would guide us, that you would illuminate the meaning of this text, uh, that it wouldn't just be head knowledge, but that it would um, migrate to our hearts, that we would grow in our relationship with you. Uh, we are grateful that Jesus died for us, uh, that he suffered the wrath that was due us for our sin. And it's received through grace, faith, believing in him. And so, Lord, we, um, we pray that you would help us to really understand grace, that you would help us to understand this relationship that is available with you. It's so easy uh, to slip under a system of works and to think that you're Love for us is dependent on how we are uh, scoring on our report cards with you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to truly abide in Christ all the days of our life. We do love you. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the, in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish, so that I might find, so that I might gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, 
being conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would guide us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. So when I was in 11th grade, I think it was, I, um, I, I had a genius idea that came through a little pickle that I was in. Uh, my, my, my pickle was the report card that came in the mail. And so the report card came in the mail. I intercepted it. And I knew that there would be a grade in there that wouldn't be uh, satisfactory in order to keep the benefits of my childhood uh, going along. And so I grabbed the envelope and I took off to my buddy's house. And so there were a group of us, you know, there were like three or four of us where we sort of hung out at my buddy's house. And at this house, his dad was a, uh, a loan broker for, for real estate and his office was at the home, which means that he had really high-end copy machines and printers and that sort of thing. And so we're, I'm sitting around lamenting that I was going to have to say goodbye to my friends for some time. Because when this report card made its way, I, I was in trouble. And I don't know who had the original idea, but we sort of were like, hey, well, I think we can manipulate this to kind of increase your grade a little bit. Hey, let's give it a shot. So we made a copy of the original. We took the grade. We whited it out. We made another copy of that whited out one. We inserted the new better grade. Not modest, you know, of course. I don't want to... I didn't want to go overboard and give myself an A or anything, but I think I brought it up to like a C minus, which would have been acceptable in the average. And so then we printed it out, we resealed everything, put it in the envelope, put it back in the mailbox, and I was golden. And it worked. It was like, this is, this is genius. And so the next semester went along, and I thought, <laughs> why do I even need to come to school? Why do I need to do this? Surf is good today, so I'm going to load up my surfboard, go surfing. Then I'll go to school by second or third period. Uh, and then that report card came. And so I'm like, okay, guys, we need to work on my absences. Like, it's going to look really weird, so let's kind of, like, manipulate it. Gave myself, again, good grades. Everything was, uh, everything was okay. Then a couple months went by, and this whole system was going on, and, and uh, eventually I got a call into Mr. Ashman's office. Now, Mr. Ashman was the, uh, the vice principal of the school. We were on a first-name basis, and, and um, <laughs> he said, uh, if I remember right, it might have actually led to a call from my parents that because he had called them, and they said, well, his grades are great. He's like doing really well, and there's no absences. And they're like, well, no, his absences are really weird. These he has a lot of doctor's appointments or something in the morning. And, and so the whole thing came crashing down. And, and uh, I, I thought it was a genius idea because I thought I was pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. And uh, it's so easy for us to play games with God and to, to, to kind of make fake report cards, looking at the externals. And the whole time, God knows the condition of our heart. He knows our motives. He knows what's going on. And we, we have a propensity um, to, to become religious. Uh, I don't want relig to, the word religion is in the Bible, but, but the idea of a system of works and a system of focusing on externals and um, coming to church, dressing right, using the right language. Um, for me, when I first became a Christian or in the process of becoming a Christian, 
I was more concerned about trying to fix the outside uh, so that I could fit in sort of in this new uh, Christian culture. Um, but, but it was essentially me just making report cards. It, it, it was a struggle. It still very much is a struggle for me, not so much, uh, you know, like here I'm a pastor. I've uh, been walking well by human standards uh, from a humanistic standard looking on the outside for a while. Um, but in the heart, it's so easy for me to measure myself based on externals and not to see myself through a loving and gracious God. It's just, it's something that we struggle with. I don't think I'm alone. Um, it's a danger, I think, for those of us who have kids that are being raised in the church. I think that our kids, there's a super huge danger of inoculating them to the gospel where they learn all of the ins and outs and language and culture, and they, and if it's you who's a kid in this church who has been raised here, um, I worry about you thinking that you know all the language, you can speak Christianese, and and um, that you actually miss a relationship with God. And and so, uh, I think this is what Paul's addressing here. He says in verse one, "Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord." To write. The same things, again, it's no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. So we have this word, finally. I have to address this. This is like one of the greatest pastor jokes. You know, everybody says, what's Paul talking about? He says, finally, in chapter 3, there's four chapters. We're halfway through, and he says, finally. Normally, finally means done. And from this, there's been all kinds of pastor jokes. When a pastor says, in conclusion, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, I think it's it's a bad rap. This this word is a translate. You could translate it finally. It literally means towards something. Um, some translations, uh, I think the NIV uses the word furthermore. Uh, the New Living Translation translates it whatever happens, and then the Young's literal translation says as to the rest. Um, it's it's a turning point in his writing, and he's going to address something that is critical to him, that uh, in the heart of God. And he says, a command, um, rejoice in the Lord. It's an absolute command to his readers that he wants them to experience this joy that is rooted in Christ, that isn't moved by the circumstances of life, but there's stability there. There's groundedness, whether uh, your whole world's falling apart, um, or everything's going great, that your hope, your, uh, your emotions are grounded in Christ. And so he says, to write these same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, the question is, what, what is he referring to? Because he's going to get sort of into a section that I don't think he's really brought up in Philippians. Like up to this point, the church in Philippians, it's not like in Galatians where there's, where there's been scolding and confrontation and, and sort of challenging over their drifting away from uh, the truth of the gospel. But he has said uh, to, to rejoice, and to, he uses the term to rejoice multiple times throughout Philippians. But it seems that they're connected together because I don't think there's any greater... Uh, killer of true joy than that of religion. If you're living your life thinking 
that every little thing you do, you're trying to earn favor with God so that he might respond positively to you. Um, That's the fastest way to lose your joy. And so Paul recognizes the the circumstances of the culture uh, that were happening there. So whether these guys had made their way to Philippians or Philippi or not, uh, Paul is writing what he's about to write with very strong words um, to to basically put them on guard to, so that they won't be asleep at the wheel and drift into this, uh, this religion, this, this uh, w- let's just see, verse 2. We'll see, beware, 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 be on the lookout, be on guard. There's three things, which are really one thing, but, but it's strong language. He says, beware of the dogs. Now, I have to stop right here because we have entirely too many dog people in Valley Center. We have people in this church who have devoted their lives to dogs. Um, This, you have to erase that from your mind. This is not uh, the dog that you uh, take to the vet to care for. This isn't the one that sleeps in your bed. This isn't the one who licks you in the face. You need to think of, now I know even there are people in this church that this illustration is going to break down because there's no dog that's not lovable. But in other parts of the world, like in Mexico and third world countries, when you go there, you tell everybody that's with you, don't touch the dog, don't look at the dog. If the dog comes near you, you just kind of put up your foot and he'll run away. Like you keep them far because they're, they're varmints. They're covered with disease and infection, and you just don't even play games with them. And that's how they view dogs there. This was the most, like the strongest sort of insult that you could call somebody. And Paul says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, which is sort of getting at the heart of what's going on. So now to To kind of understand the context, let's go to Acts chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, hold your place in Philippians. We're going to go to Acts, and we're going to go to Galatians. So if you're flipping pages and you come across Galatians, you can hold your spot there. But we're going to go to um, Acts chapter 15. And I want to remind us sort of of the context of Philippians, of of how did Paul uh, first acquaint himself with this church. And so in Acts chapter 15 beginning in verses uh, 4 through 6, we see the context of Acts chapter 15. And so we read um, Acts chapter 15, verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and all the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So now the big issue was as the church started at Pentecost in Jerusalem, it's composed of all Jewish people. You had uh, Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, who spoke Greek, and you had the, the, the native-born Jews who were, who were there. Uh, they kept their language. They kept their culture. But they were all 100% Jewish. They were all Jewish. They just had sort of cultural differences. Well, as persecution broke out, the church scattered, and it began to reach to Gentiles, those who had no affiliation with, with, with being Jewish at all. Um, and so Paul, who we'll see today, his credentials, that he was um, the most qualified Jewish um, apostle. The, the rest of them were basically fishermen, 
they were, if you call them uneducated, would, wouldn't really be fair, but they were essentially uneducated by, by a Pharisee, Pharisee standard. But then you have Paul, who's like, he's got all of the pedigree, all of the education, basically an Ivy League Jew. He was on track to be the, the leader of the Sanhedrin. And so this guy is the guy that God uses to reach Greeks. And so he goes out. These, these Greeks are coming to Christ. They're getting saved. And now a big war is breaking out. How do these Gentiles, how do they relate to the law of Moses? How do they relate to circumcision? Because that was a kind of a key point of life for a Jewish person. It was the covenant that God gave Israel that separated Israel from the rest of the nations. And so there were the Judaizers who said, they need to be sort of indoctrinated into our ways. They need to live according to our ways. Now, Paul was fighting back and saying, this isn't true. They're under grace. We all are under grace. It's a different dispensation. We, we are living differently now. And so we have this setting. They have this big council. This is where all of the power hitters of, of the early church were gathered in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 15 is often referred to as the Jerusalem Council. All of these guys go back and forth. How are we going to handle it? What are we going to do? We skip down to verse 19, and we see sort of the outcome, what they decided. In verse 19, we read, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminating, contaminated by idols from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. How far am I supposed to read? All the way down to 31 here. Uh, then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church, uh, men from among them, to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barnabas, or, yeah, Barsabas, uh, and Silas, the leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, and I'm not going to read the whole letter, but they basically came up with a letter. They said, okay, what we need to do is to go to the churches and tell them these are the three things. They don't have to, they don't have to be circumcised. They're not under the law, but in sensitivity to their Jewish brothers in Christ, please honor these three things. It'll, just, it'll help this, this merging of these two cultural groups under the gospel. And so from Acts 15, Paul takes uh, a guy, they take off, they go through, he meets up with Timothy, uh, they find their way into Philippi, which is a totally Roman city. There's no Jews there. There's no synagogue there. They meet with some women down at the, uh, the water, and a, a church is born. And this was 10 years prior to Paul's imprisonment. And so, so basically, in the midst of this, how do these new Christian believers who are Gentiles with no Jewish background, how do they handle life? as it relates to Judaism. And so they went there. Now, if we skip over to Galatians uh, chapter 2, I think this is the verse that helps us sort of see what happened. So as Paul was going about talking about the gospel, explaining grace, sharing the freedom that there is in Christ, freedom from, um, I want to say Judaism, but, but when I say Judaism, I want to be cautious. We're not talking about what the Old Testament says, you know, like the, the thick part and the most of the Bible, like that's not all of it, but you know, that's, the Judaism there was they'd taken the Old Testament, they had a bunch of rabbis, they came up with a bunch of 
uh, commentaries on this. And then they added to what the Old Testament said, and they made, made a bunch of rules and regulations to help navigate the Bible. So we're not talking about necessarily the Old Testament, which in some case we are, but these guys known as the Judaizers, they came alongside and they were sort of um, adding to and undercutting what Paul and the Jerusalem Council had, had sort of told of them. And, and it was a struggle. We'll see in Galatians that it was a struggle even for, for Peter the Apostle, who was all for reaching the Gentiles, but Judaism was so ingrained into him that the religion sort of was forced upon others, and he would change how he acted when other Jews were around, how he interacted with Gentiles, and this was a huge problem. And so Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, writes this sort of the scathing letter to get the church back on track with grace. And so verse 11 of chapter 2 of Galatians But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and to hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's Peter, in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so he confronts him. So this was a huge problem in the early church. Galatians was probably the first New Testament letter that was written, and so it's dated very close to Acts 15. This was a problem that Paul had to confront over and over and over again. And so when we find ourselves back in Philippians chapter 3, and Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. It's no problem for me to say these same things again and again and again because he knew the danger of living under religion. Charles Swindoll on this point says, The obvious problem with this kind of thinking, besides the fact that it is not biblical, is that no one can see the supposed heavenly scale that holds our life in its balance. At best, we can guess whether or not it is tipped in our favor. So life is reduced to a constant seesaw struggle for salvation, motivated by a fear that that enough is never enough. We must always work harder and do more. And so there is no greater killer of joy than religion. And so Paul is confronting this religion here in Philippians. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I need to warn you about religion, and I'm going to come strong with my words, and I'm going to explain. He says, we are of the true circumcision, verse 3, who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence of the flesh. He says, we're the true circumcision. Remember, they're literally going around trying to circumcise these Greek uh, believers in Christ who have no connection to Judaism, who weren't circumcised, and they're saying, you need to do all these external things to get right with God. Paul says, no, they're missing it. They're focusing on the externals. He says, we Believers in Christ are the true circumcision. And if you were to read over in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, Paul speaks of this. This is is the circumcision of the heart. This is transformation, new life in Christ. This isn't about a system of works. It's about 
receiving God's grace by faith. And when you do that, the Spirit of God indwells you. You're sealed in Him. You're transformed. You're a new creature. It's free of charge. It's free of works. It's totally a gift. And it doesn't fit mathematically in our minds because it doesn't go along with our economy of anything. And here God is. Our greatest need is relationship with Him being connected to God. And he says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. I sent my son to die on the cross for you to pay the penalty that was due you 100%, free and, every, free and clear, everything. All you need to do is respond in faith. It's a gift, period. So simple that we have to add to it. And that's the problem. We need to worship God inwardly, not outwardly through our flesh. And we need to keep ourselves on track. You think you can work your way with God? You think you can work your way right with God? Well, let's compare yourself to Paul. You know, it's funny that people always kind of compare Paul to like, well, if Paul could get saved, then oh, Joe could get saved. But Paul wasn't a pagan. Paul wasn't out like, oh, you know, he's not like strung out on the streets on you know the drug of the day. Paul was a religious guy. He got saved by realizing that he was actually a sinner. And that he needed a savior prior to Christ uh, meeting him on the road to Damascus. He thought he was good to go just because he was Paul. Look what he says, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Paul says, I'm totally opposed to having any confidence in the flesh. Our confidence comes in our faith in Christ by his works. It's his righteousness. But if there's anybody out there that could have confidence in the flesh, it's me. There's nobody that could trump Paul. Paul was the golden child as far as religion of the Jews was concerned. He's going to list seven things in this, this list. Four of them come from his sort of his pedigree, what he was born into, and the other three deal with uh, his relationship to these things, his works, what he did in addition to his pedigree. So he says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I am more. There is nobody that could say they were more Jewish, more credentialed, more pedigreed than Paul. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So that's his pedigree. That's what he was born into. Then he says, now concerning his works, how did his works relate to the law? He says, well, relating to the law, I was a Pharisee. Very few people could become a Pharisee, but Paul was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. We know that the first martyr in the, in the church, Stephen, was at the authority of Paul. They laid their coats at his feet, which indicates that he was sort of the, the boss in charge endorsing this execution. We know that he went around wrangling up Christians, throwing them in jail. I've never had so much zeal for the law. I mean, I, he says, I was a persecutor of the church. As this last one always my, blows my mind. As to righteousness, which is in the law. There's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And then you start taking the commentaries of the Jewish leaders. And the, I don't even know the count. But Paul says, by our standard of measuring righteousness, I was blameless. I've only met one or two people in my life that have looked at me in the eye and they thought that they were free of sin. And in all honesty with you, I thought they were nut jobs. Like, I, I'm not trying to be funny because you're a pretty, your mind is a little off if you 
can't see how holy God is and where you are in relation to him. Like this, this, this. but Paul's no nut job. He says, as the law was concerned, I've devoted my life to everything is seeking after this religion. The New American Commentary says this about Paul. These seven characteristics of heredity and achievement reveal that Paul's accepting Christ did not occur because he was marginally Jewish. He had not failed in his own religion. He had seen a better way and chose to follow it. He knows more than any other the emptiness of religion. You know, most of us don't believe the really extremely wealthy people that talk about the the dissatisfaction of extreme wealth. They talk about its emptiness. They talk about its how it doesn't do anything for you. It only it only highlights depression, sorrow. And I'm like the guy from Fiddler on the Roof. May the Lord smite me with it, and I never recover. You know, like like this is how we all are. This Paul was raised in a religious culture, and this is why, like, as a dad of kids that were literally born in church. I have four kids that were born in church. They're here every time the doors are open. There's a lot of kids that are here all the time. And my greatest fear of children in the church, which I've already stated, is that they walk away. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I went to good Bible teaching every single week. I'm a, what is it, the award? I don't want to, before I get too out of control here, I earned the Timothy Award in Awanas. I earned, like, all of these credentials, and I, like, look at me. But they have no concept of who Christ is. And I'm not back, like, like, I'm speaking generally. Like, I'm not talking at any, like, I'm talking about my fear. It's so easy to go down this religious road and to think because you sit under good teaching, because you go to Sunday school, because you do this. Like, we don't even really have Sunday school because you're in Bible studies, because you're at church, because you read out the right translation, because you listen to the right worship, because whatever, you fill in the blank that you think you're good with God because of what you do, yet your heart is like a stone. You think poorly about other people. You judge everybody, it, not in love. Like, there's, like, I don't think judging, like, it's one thing to assess a person's spiritual condition and to be heartbroken over them and to love them and want to win them to Christ. It's another thing to, to judge them in the sense of, oh, I'm so much better. You know, I think that old story that Jesus tells the parable, the the guy in the temple praying who says, thank God I'm not like those guys. And he lists all the stuff. And then you have the tax collector, can't even look heavenward with tears in his eyes, beating, I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, that's the guy that will enter the kingdom of heaven because he understands who he is. He is a broken man. He understands how holy God is and how desperate he is for God's grace. And this is what Paul is pleading for. Don't, get, don't go down the road of religion. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Like, like we can say, oh, walking away from religion, that would be a good thing. Like it'd be, like, but for Paul to walk away from these things and these benefits and this, like this was no, this was to walk away from extreme power to destitution, to, 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 to basically giving his life, losing everything he had, losing his power, losing his credentialing, losing his respect amongst his peers, losing his family, his co-workers, uh, to, 
to, he's writing these things while under house arrest, waiting the outcome of his life. We ultimately know that he would give his life for Christ and he would be executed. So when he says, whatever things were gained to me, these things were huge gain to him. This wasn't just like, oh, I had this little thing. It was nice, you know. Like, this was huge. And he says, these things I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. He says, more than that, I counted all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. This word rubbish, is the, this is like refuse. This is the, the great debate about whether this is like dung or whether this is like, you know when you, like I love eating. I mean, not as much as like Ben or Joshua. Josh, like we're there in new, like different categories of eating. But I like eating and I like going to restaurants. But it's amazing to me at restaurants, when you go around the back of a restaurant, have you ever smelled like the garbage of a restaurant or a cafeteria? It is the, ugh, like worst. I mean, it brings out the gag reflex in you. That's the word. Paul counted all of this religion as like something that when he smelt it or seen it, it just brought like he wanted to vomit. It was so foul. In exchange for knowing Christ, and this isn't intellectual. There's a bunch of different words in the Greek for knowledge. This is, this is a, I always mix it up with Spanish. It's gnosko, I think, isn't it? But what's the word in Spanish for knowing? Ghost in the minute. See, I always get them kind of there. And I've harassed my wife in Spanish so much with my, my, my gringo-ness that I've, like, really messed up words in my mind. And gnosko <laughs> is one of these words. Um, yeah, that's the... I don't want to get too far down that trap because there's another word that sounds similar that I have. But knowing Christ, this is experiential knowledge. This is to like know intimately, personally, not, not just uh, academically. There was a man for a number of years, a good friend of mine now. He's a police officer. We would, I'd, I'd spend time riding with him. He'd say, hey, you got to evangelize me. And man, everybody in the world was trying to evangelize this guy. It was out of control. He's asking everybody to evangelize. He's like, I want to, I want to, I, I want to know more about it. But before I do it, I need to know everything. And so at one time, like it's finally, it's like three in the morning, and so Gunner's filter was coming a little unhinged. And I said, you know, brother, I can like, I can tell you all about skydiving. I can teach you how to fold a parachute. I can teach you how to put it on your back. I can teach you all of the mechanics about when you should jump, when you should pull, if, you're, if there's a malfunction. I can teach you all of the, the drills for going through um, a failure in the air so that you can safely deploy your reserve. I can talk to you and teach you till you know everything in your mind about skydiving. But you'll never know skydiving until you actually jump out of a plane. This is what we're talking about. There's knowledge that's head and then there's knowledge that's experience. And there's a lot of people in the church that know all things about Christ, but they don't know him. And Paul says, I count all of these things to be a loss in view of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ, knowing him intimately, deeply, relationally. It's not about a, a checklist like of, of things that you have to get done in order to get right with God. God wants you to abide in him, to spend time with him, to get to know him in his word. And as you spend time with him, as you read the scriptures and, and pray and commune with him, you begin to know your creator. And it's not, it's not religion. I was with a, a, a guy that 
and we were talking about our, uh, one of our seminary professors. And our seminary professor, Thomas Rom, is this man who, he's like a grandfather. And he personally has this, like, intensity about him that I have a lot of respect for. There's an intensity and a humility kind of, like, wrapped in this one package. And nobody wants to let Thomas down. It has nothing to do with, like, the grade on the paper. And we met a couple weeks ago, and, and I was saying, yo, yeah, man, I know exactly what you're talking about. I remember my Greek paper. I, like... I submitted this paper, and I got an A on the paper. But Thomas wrote under the paper that I had missed like one point. My work was still worthy of an A, but he was a little let down that I missed this one point because he really thought I had this aptitude that I would get it. And I remember like, I mean, I just told you my story about my fake report cards, right? Like, I was stoked for fake Cs in my old life. And then in seminary, I got a real A with this, I really thought you were going to nail this. And I was devastated because it wasn't about, I mean, it was, it was about the relationship with this man that I had the, the utmost respect for. So God says, fear, like, fear God, love God, walk with him. It's because he loves you so much, he's given everything to you. And so there should be within us this, this response as we get to know him. More than that, I count all things, verse 8, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and counted them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. What did he say? His, his relationship to the law, he said he was found blameless according to the law. And he says that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, you can do what you want and you can try to, try to create your own righteousness and you can try to look like the good Christian and do all of these things. But if these things are being done sort of out of the wrong motivation, it's like creating that fake report card that I did. You can fool all of us. Like, you can fool me. You can fool everybody that's sitting around you. You might have a hard time fooling your family. You're certainly not fooling God. And, and this is a different righteousness. This is Christ's Righteousness that's available to us on the basis of faith. And, and, and the theological term for this is to impute his righteousness to us. It means to credit your account. I know I've told the story all the time. Like, I, I've, I've shared this story a lot. But a few years ago, my credit card was compromised, like a good compromise. I mean, it was like a couple thousand dollars. Flight somewhere in Europe. I was like, I'm like I looked at it and... I was like, am I going to Europe? Like, I just needed to, like, I was, like, kind of hoping I was going to Europe. I was like, maybe I just forgot about something. I think I might have even asked Dan. I'm like, did I, is there any way I could have bought trips to, to Europe? And she's like, I hope so. Like, I'm ready to go. Like, I, I'm like, no, I must not. So I called a credit card company. And so they, um, they had immediately, they stopped the charge so that it never went through. 
But then the fraud department, like a few weeks later, they had then reimbursed this charge in addition to stopping the charge. So there was like a plus $2,000 in my account. I thought, I guess I really should call the credit card company again. And so I called them and explained the situation. The person on the phone is like, oh, that's really unusual. I don't know why that is. There's some like... Like, somehow your thing went through the... I don't even know if I'll be able to, like, undo this. I'll need to... And I was like, well, this is going to be a big hassle. Don't even worry about it. Like, I, like I, I don't want to harm your day. Just... <laughs> that $2,000 that sat there wasn't mine. It was the bank's. And that's kind of what Christ's righteousness does to our spiritual bank account. His righteousness is credited to our account. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we've done to earn it. But as far as God is concerned, as he looks at us, if we're in Christ, we're free of sin. It makes no sense to me. Religion makes more sense. Like, it makes more sense that you should not swear, help elderly ladies across the road, do good deeds, do all of these things. And I would want to be in a competition with other humans because I think that I can land in the first, you know, the top 51% or 49%. But that's not the race we're running. The standard is God's righteousness. And the only way you can achieve that is through his righteousness. And he's made a way for us. And Paul says on the basis of faith that I may know him. Again, this word, knowing him. Relationship, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, other in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's like, I just want to know him so deeply, intimately, and be connected to him. Because if I'm walking with him, my whole world, I could be under arrest. I could be facing my, my death. It doesn't matter because in him, with the sovereign God who's in charge of all things, there's life, there's joy, there's peace. They can't take away that. Last Sunday night, I, I had the privilege of a uh, super meaningful, like this buddy of mine from the SEAL teams we deployed together. I was a Christian and he was not. And he was one that busted my chops for being a Christian so hard, like over and over and over and over again. He was ruthless. And we've suffered a lot of losses, me and him, with guys that we love in the SEAL teams. The last time I saw him was like, I don't know, three, four years ago at a funeral. And he was looking really rough. I mean, bags under his eyes, tremors in his hands. He was not the guy I knew back then. But four years ago, he was still harassing me for my faith in Christ, telling me what a whack job I was for following after this, like, hocus pocus, like, pocus, you know, following zombies was what he put it. And then about six months ago, he emails me, and he says, Gunnar, I'll be in town, and will you baptize me? And I said, I'm sorry, Dirt. I got, his Dirt nickname was Dirt. I don't even know why I like that. I said, you got to, like, before I baptize you, do you, do you kind of remember harassing me all those years? Like, why do you want to get baptized? Like, you got ex- like, to kind of like explain this to me. So he explained it, and he's like, no, I'm a Christian now, and Christ has changed my life, and I'd have no greater honor than to have you baptize me. Um, and so we went down to the bay, uh, down at Glorietta Bay in Coronado, where we've done all kinds of operations. And, and, I, and I looked at him, and I said, hey, do you remember the last time we were down here? He's saying, I don't. I'm like, I can tell you exactly the last time we were down here. The last time we were down here, we were doing Zodiac operations on our little rubber boats, and we were going out to the bay. And I was in one boat, and he was in another boat, and my boat broke down. And uh, 
the, the problem with my boat broken down is I was supposed to be the guy that was supposed to fix it because I had just gone to Evanrude Johnson factory, uh, was it Evanrude Johnson uh, outboard repair motor school thingamajigger, and I was factory certified. I still have the certificate saying that I like know how to take an outboard motor, break it completely down, and put it back together. <laughs> that paper is worthless. Um, yeah, I um, yeah, like my report card. But this one was legitimate, though. <laughs> this is a. Uh... So when we showed up to the school, we were paired up, and so I was paired up with another seal, and so everything was done as a team. And so I got, I, the first day I brought in coffee for my buddy. And he starts doing the work. And I'm like, you, you actually look like you know what you're doing. He's like, oh, yeah, before I was in the Navy, I was a mechanic for like five years. I'm like, sweet, this is the guy I want on my team. And so every day he's like, you just bring me a cup of coffee in the morning, I'll do everything. I said, I don't even have to get my hands greasy. He's like, no, you got to get your hands greasy because it'll look like you're doing something. Like, okay, yeah. So, like, I'd bring in a cup of coffee, and I'd just be, like, twisting stuff and, like, put a couple on my forehead, you know, like, I'm working really hard. And last day, the test came, and I brought him an Egg McMuffin meal because I really wanted to do it up. So we took, we had the whole engine into every little piece, and the last day, the test is to put it all back together, pull it, and have it start. So we did it. <laughs> he did it totally and completely. And so as we're broken down in the bay, I'm on the radio saying, can somebody come help me? I don't. And it was dirt. So dirt came over. He said, Connor, why am I coming over to help you? You factory serve. I'm like, well, not really. And I am, but you guys only sent me to school as a joke, and I didn't take it seriously. So he, he fixed it all up. And the point of telling that story is that's kind of like our righteousness in Christ. You don't do anything. He does all the work, and you get credit for it. It's beautiful. And, and the point of this whole section so easy to think that God wants religion for us, from us. For so much of my early Christian life, I thought to be a Christian, it meant that I had to look like Ned Flanders. And many of you probably don't even know who Ned Flanders is. But he was the Christian next door neighbor of Bart Simpson. So that's where my theology came from early in my Christian life. And so <laughs> Ned Flanders had a sweater he talked in very Christian-like language. It was very externally based. And so I thought that Gunner had to become Ned Flanders if I was to become a good Christian. And it's devastated when you live like that. There's no, there's no security. There's no confidence. There's, there's no um, true joy or hope. And it's taken me a long time to be comfortable with Gunner because I know how sinful Gunner is. And it doesn't seem fair that Gunner would be credited with Christ's righteousness because Gunner is a very unrighteous person. But the scripture tells us that Christ came, he was in our place, our substitute. It's a theological substitutionary atonement. That means he stood in your place, he took the wrath that was due you, and then God imputes his righteousness to your account when you've placed your faith in him. So Paul is warning us to avoid the road of religion. Just don't go down it. Place your faith in Christ. Trust him to work in your life. And as you do that, you will find the joy that is commanded here in verse 1. As we move into next week, he's going to tell you, stop looking at the past. 
Stop looking in the rearview mirror. Stop looking at all your sin that's been paid for. You look forward to Christ and you press on. And so, Father, we do thank you for grace. I am. Um, Lord, I acknowledge that this, this concept of grace is, is overwhelming. It's, um, it's such a hard gift to truly receive. So easy to, to believe the lies of Satan that, that remind us of our past sins, to, to remind us of our shortcomings. If we just honestly evaluate ourselves, the, the pull of our heart is always, it's always out of alignment. And so, Father, we look to you to, uh, for salvation. If there are people here who have never trusted in Christ, or that, whether they've been in the church their whole life or not, Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross for all that it is, that that he died once and for all, that his sacrifice was sufficient as the book of Hebrews and all throughout the New Testament tell us. Father, I pray that you would help us, for those of us that haven't come to you by faith, that you would help us to respond in faith. For those of us that have responded in faith, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from thinking religiously. Guard us from going down a a system of works. Of course, we work out of love in response to you, and from the human eye, it can look like it it, it, it seems the same, but it's, it's a huge difference. And so, Father, we pray that you would grow our love for you, grow our passion for you. May we desire you with all that we are. We love you, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. And we also pray for the food that we're about to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.